This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. Joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Special guest this week, our great friend of ours from New Jersey, comic Dave Smith. Dave, how you doing? Doing very good. Always happy to talk to you guys. Well, so today we're doing a little bit of a departure, more of a political landscape roundtable discussion. And this really uh, feeds off of the conversation Bob and I had last week on administrative agencies and their overreach. And so how the idea that Americans were witnessing, for example, the FBI raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago, the same set of facts, but almost watching two different movies in terms of the way they interpret it. And I think this political schism in our country is, is something worth investigating. I think about it a lot. I write about it a lot. And let me just, let me just frame this a little bit for you, Dave, uh, this way. Um, you know, I don't have this hubris in that I don't believe that this is the most divided Americans have ever been. There have certainly been periods in American history where there's more outright violence in the streets over politics. I mean, so we shouldn't kid ourselves. But I will say that something very definite has shifted within my lifetime. Um, so this is actually a theme of a book of mine that's coming out, a series of essays. The idea that politics has dropped any pretense. There's no longer this pretense in a democracy that, you know, well, the other side has, is, is well-intentioned. Or, you know, they just see the world differently. There's no longer this pretense that you have the far left and the far right. And what uh, democratic politics does is it creates some sort of compromise down the middle where everybody gets some of what they want, but nobody gets all of what they want. I mean, nobody believes that anymore. We all understand that there's just this permanent political overclass uh, and, and so that mass democracy just doesn't work. But there's also no longer a pretense that candidates even claim to run or would represent the entirety of their uh, constituency, right? Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, that was viewed as a winner-take-all mortal combat and whichever side lost would spend the next four years almost feeling like they were living in an occupied zone with a, with a foreign government ruling over them. I mean, that's how things are now. And that may be melodramatic, that may be histrionic on our part, but nonetheless, I think that's the reality. And so I know, Dave, you and I have had this conversation where our standards for politics have dropped so low. I mean, I look at someone now, and, and my first inclination is, does this person hate my guts? Yeah. That's the starting point. And when I look at Hillary Clinton, the answer is yes. And when I look at, let's say, a Tulsi Gabbard, a lot of libertarians get frothy about her, and she's not a libertarian, she's not, whatever. For, for whatever reason, on, an, on, a, on, a, on a visceral level, Tulsi Gabbard doesn't hate my guts. So that's almost a starting point in, in, for politics today in, I guess, what we could call post-persuasion, post-goodwill clown America. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really it. And and I, we talked about this when I was on the radio with you, where it's like, that's almost what people love about Ron DeSantis is you're like, well, he doesn't hate my guts and he doesn't want to lock me in my home. So I think he's a pretty good guy. And it's just like, I, I'm not even saying, like, those things are important, but it's, man, that is a low bar. <laughs> that is a but really low bar. look what they're bar. calling him. They're calling him a fascist. He was not allowed to right. speak at a, at a at a Jewish event in New York. Uh, I mean, it's yeah, crazy. Which, which and and the crazy thing about that too is if you know his track record from uh from when he was uh in Congress I mean he's like a hardcore Zionist we might you know criticize him for other reasons like being way too I mean his foreign policy pre 
his, his being governor was just horrendous. But I do think the point you made I, I, to open, I mean, look, we did fight a civil war in this country once. So I certainly don't think you could say it's the worst things have ever been. And there have been very tumultuous times before. But I think certainly I would say in my life, it's never been anything like this. There's the the things that I noticed that are really like really striking to me are and, and I think there are, it, it, there are like um polls that measure this to some degree, but the trust in institutions has completely evaporated. And just the animus between different the different camps within the country, even when you if you look at like the corporate press, it was always they were always attacking, you know, like Fox News would always be attacking the Democrats and MSNBC would always be attacking the Republicans. But when you turn on MSNBC now, it they're attacking Republican voters as the great evil like that's it's like they hate half the american people or whatever a third of the american people i guess 50 percent never actually vote uh for each side but there does seem to be something different there and i agree with you there doesn't there's there's not what's fascinating to me and kind of terrifying is that so like you talk about the post-persuasion america there there's not an attempt anymore to say okay um we a bunch of Trump supporters believe this election was stolen. Let's convince them that it wasn't so that they believe in our legitimacy to rule. It's just like, let's arrest as many of them as we can. Let's call them every name that we can. They just want to, there's, there's no attempt to say, let's bring them back into the fold. You know, um, uh, Henry Kissinger was not a good person at all, uh, but he, he wrote in his, his book, World Order, and they said, who's the, the greatest president in the United States of America? And he said, no question, it's Truman. And because mm. what Truman did was he won the war and then he brought Germany and Japan back into the international order. Now, forget all the problems like we may have with this morally. You can understand where from Henry Kissinger's point of view – there's there's like a logic to that, right? Like if your whole thing is this global geopolitical order, well, then what's the greatest president ever? The one who smashed them and then made them love him. You know, like mm-hmm. it's it's sick and evil, but there's something to that. There seems right now with the current American regime, there seems to be no interest in that. They're not even interested in bringing the Trumpers back into their order. They really just want to smash them. And there's something very scary about that. You realize, Dave, now there's going to be a clips on Twitter going around saying Dave Smith loves Kissinger. But that's yes, yeah, that yeah. was the point. Uh, just to add to what you guys are saying, um, I'm sure, Jeff, when your book comes out, there's it'll be more news. But my view would have been the Democrats always said the Republicans were evil monsters. And like that explained their behavior or their policies because they just hate poor people. They, you know, hate minorities and what. But the Republicans, when, you know, in the 80s, let's say it was more an attitude of the Democrats are just stupid. Like they, they just don't, they actually think raising the minimum wage will help, you know, poor workers and they just don't know they're idiots. Ha ha. Whereas now, yeah, it really is just both sides think the other is unmitigated evil. And like you say, whoever wins, it's going to be an, an occupied country. Um, Dave, I did like your take on the Mar-a-Lago thing because a lot of people were coming out and saying, oh, if, if they, if the FBI can do this to the a former president, they can do it to you. And your take was, no, they've been doing it to the average people for decades. And now it's just, they can't even do it to a former president. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's almost just factually correct. I don't know. What, you know what I mean? It's like, no, I mean, it's not as if like this was the first time we've seen a raid, you know, a, a, against someone for a very like minor offense. It's no, there's tens of thousands of SWAT raids. Every uh, federal, you know, the, the Department of Education has a SWAT team and the EPA has a SWAT team and every local police department has the, the little town I live in here has like an armored truck that they take out to they, they'll literally they'll follow kids around for their birthday with it because there's just no crime here they have no like idea what to even do with it so yeah i mean there's definitely something new in terms of like how uh weaponized the fbi and the cia and the nsa were used against donald trump but it was building up for years and then was was you know unleashed on a president which i i admit is kind of striking to see uh, it does feel like something different than it just being done for someone, you know, in some neighborhood somewhere. But really, it's like, no, we built up these these uh, these institutions to the point where they're used against a president. It's not as if, oh, now they can be unleashed on the American people. They have been from from the very beginning. I also do think that what what you opened with there is is a very good point. And there's I think for a long time, the kind of uh, Republican voter response to being called racist or sexist or horrible or whatever awful term was to convince, was to say, no, I'm not, I'm not a racist. And here's why, you know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm not taking the racist position. And I think that really shifted, uh, with the rise of Donald Trump. I think that mm -hmm. after, you know, it, after the, the, what, what was it? Eight years of post financial crisis and disastrous wars and just the, these people really feeling like they had gotten the short end of the stick. They weren't even trying to argue, no, I'm not actually a racist anymore. Now their response was something like, you're a demon. I'm not, you know, it's, and, and you see a lot more of that now. It's, it's part of the reason why some people are, a lot of these crazy conspiracies, even though maybe not technically true, are much more likely to take hold and grow. Um, people are the, the the right is playing that game now too of demonizing the other side for better or yeah, worse. Yeah, and I, I think politics has always been war by ever, other means. We know that, and so the idea that you use politics to vanquish people, people you don't like, I think is that's the name of the game. That's fine. We don't have to be. Uh, you know, we can be clear eyed about that. I, but what's changed is that people don't seem to obscure this as much anymore. They don't try to gift wrap it and put a bow on top of it and say, oh, that's the democratic process. Isn't it great that we can all vote and express ourselves? No. Now they're just saying these deplorables, for example, have to basically be placed outside of civil society. Uh, they, you know, we're not yet at the point where we're going to round them up and put them in camps or kill them or whatever. But you know, they really ought to be kicked out of their jobs. They ought to be prevented from going out in public if they're unvaxxed, for example. I mean, there's all kinds of, of demonstrations of this. And so obviously this is all a symptom of a society that is post-goodwill. Uh, there, there's no longer goodwill. You know, I remember as a kid, like my dad uh, talking to his neighbor and they clashed politically, but there was, it was just different back then. Um, but also this idea that we're past persuasion and now everything's about force, everything's about turnout, whether that's voter turnout or maybe even, you know, pressure at the corporate level. Uh, maybe that's deep state uh, uh, activism. Maybe that's outright street action by people like Antifa. 
Um, that's that's something that Steve Bannon came up with post-persuasion America. And I heard him say this in a PBS special about America Divided. And it had a lot of people like Robert Reich interviewed. And they interviewed Bannon and he said, look, information about policy, ideology, the, the positions of the candidates or, or the parties, it's never been more instantaneously available at our fingertips for free. He said, so information has become cheaper. And as a result, it's become less valuable. There's more of it, and it's instantaneous, and it's free. You don't have to go to a library anymore or go to a university to find out a lot of things. So, but instead of making this this new, cheaper, easier information, instead of it making us more probative or, or more, you know, uh, more thoughtful or more inquiring about, let's say, our own political inclinations, Bannon says this done the opposite. People are just more dug in than ever. Uh, they're actually listening to the other side less. They're actually considering their own positions less as a result of all this blizzard of white noise, not more, which I, I don't know why that would be true, but it seems as though it's true. And so right. we have this position now where, you know, what what are we doing in politics? Why are we all waiting for this next national election, which is almost a it's, – it's like a harm ritual. Uh, you know, why Why are we just sitting by idly and sort of allowing this train wreck to uh, slowly happen in front of us? Yeah, well, I guess we in some ways you don't have much of a choice. I mean, if if you are going to be ruled over by either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump and you really hate the other one, then I guess that's a pretty important thing to, to fight about for a lot of people. I think that, you, you know, I, I think part of it is you know, there's the element of what we were saying before, like if someone hates your guts and you you know that on, on an instinctual level, you know that they hate you. It's very hard to have like a real conversation where we're trying to persuade each other. I've, I've experienced this just in my own little world in the Libertarian Party. Like if someone hates my guts, it's like, I don't know, are we really here to like have a conversation now or is it just who's going to win and who's going to lose? Um, so th that's part of it. I also think that there's, I think a major part of all of this is that because there's a lot of things going on at once. It's like the rise of the information age or the internet, you know, age and social media and all of this kind of correlated with, uh, with America falling apart in a lot of different ways. And forget even like you know the the, the like morality of the state, which we all kind of uh, you know have talked about and read a lot about, but just in terms of how it works. And and I'm sure there's a good like libertarian uh analysis of this like why why did things work so much better in america in the, in the past i think a, a lot of it is probably because there was more of a free market i think part of the reason why we won the second world war was because we had this giant industrial base that could be converted over to be used by the military that a lot of that had come from the free market um today in america i think the whole thing is kind of propped up by this crazy monetary policy being the world reserve currency, just pumping money into Washington, D.C. and New York City. And that this is where all the wealthiest districts in the country are. They're all right outside of Washington, D.C. or New York City, because it's like the you know, you're either connected to like some think tank that's funded by a weapons company and you're a millionaire from Washington, D.C., or you're a millionaire from being in the stock market um, or playing that game. And the, for regular people, it's just been a disaster. And that's not to say that there haven't been great technological advances and things like that, but very basic things don't function the way they used to. And I think that all of this together 
has created this kind of tsunami of what we're in right now, that nobody trusts the institutions. And so the institutions kind of gave up on even trying to persuade you. And I also think they're a little bit too lost in their own, you know, circles that they don't even understand it. So they're all like, I think there are a lot of genuine believers within the corporate press of their insanity, like that January 6th should be the most important thing to you, Mm -hmm. even though you're and you're just sitting here caring about like the price of eggs going up. Like, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. January 6th, you know? And so all of this has kind of come together to create the mess that we're in now. One thing just to piggyback on what you guys are saying that, that I would say as far as like what is qualitatively different now from before Trump, to be frank, is that I've seen like like NPR. I, a lot of times I would listen to that just to you know get a sense because they're you know they're real buttoned down and we're, we're going to be respect, you know, respectable and blah, blah, blah. And the decision they made, and they even talked about it. Like, I, re- I remember where I was when I heard it, when they explicitly said to their v- listeners, we, we've made this editorial decision where they would say, President Trump claimed falsely that he had more attendees at his inaugural event than Obama did. You know, to put in the word falsely like that, you know what I mean? Like, they had never, mm-hmm. as if mm-hmm. this was the first political figure that they were going to quote, you know, who actually might be lying once in a while, you know, and, and they explained why they were doing that <laughs> as opposed to just... And it was like I was listening to a thing yesterday on NPR about, you know, Liz Cheney and they were, you know, they had her talking to her thing. And then they had the, you know, the Victor talk to her crowd and the the correspondent or whatever you call him setting up the, the sound bite for the audience was saying. And now she's going to claim she's going to lie to the crowd and tell them that, you know, the election was stolen. And it was really we just Orwellian like you don't. That's what they're disputing. That's the whole issue under dispute. And so for you just to tell us editorially, that, oh, no, she's lying like it's so they're there. I mean, obviously, NPR was always had a bias and especially, you know, CNN and all that. But mm-hmm. what to me, what changed after the Trump is that they're just flat out saying, no, he's lying to you right now. Whereas before they would say, you know, President George W. Bush claims that such and such. But, you know, here's someone mm-hmm. to say the torture is wrong. Like, that's the way they would do it. Yeah, I love I, yeah, I know. No, I know exactly what you mean. And there's and there's lots of examples like that um, throughout the Trump's presidency where it was just so clear that and, and everyone could smell this. It's just like you're doing something with him that you never did before. And, you know, I loved uh, um, Jeff, your your piece that you wrote last week where you were saying uh, responding to what was it? The guy at National Review. Uh, who you were responding to, who said, you know, uh, it was just such a boomery like like thing to say about the Trump raid. He goes, well, look, no president is above the law. And if there was wrongdoing at the FBI, then those people should be held accountable. And Jeff's just like, look, what what are we kindergartners here? Like, first off, yes, presidents are above the law. They always are above the law. And when is anyone at the FBI ever held accountable for anything that they do wrong, like ever? And so it's just it's almost as if there there were these things that is just kind of well this is what professional people say and it hit a point where just no one's believing it anymore this is just it's so mm-hmm. removed from reality and so even when they would say you know they would make this big deal about Donald Trump lying i remember they used to do this thing where they'd count yeah. you know they'd be like Donald Trump has told 17,000 lies in his presidency and and it and it beat things even like i mean and he told important lies too i'm not like trying to downplay that i'm not making excuses for trump who i think was a disaster in every way uh just about every way um but you know like the two previous presidents if you what what was their signature achievement of george w bush and barack obama i don't even think is within dispute was d- the thing they were known for the most was, was the war in iraq for george bush and obamacare for for 
Barack Obama. And both of them were completely sold off mm-hmm. lies. Like, bold face, look in the American people, tell them this is what it's going to be. It's not that at all. And like, it's even admitted, lies. like PolitiFact g- gave four yeah. Pinocchios or whatever to Obama saying you can keep your plan yeah. if you want it. Yeah, it's just it's just factually not true. You know what I mean? Like uh, and and so and, and WMDs, of course, all that stuff. So for the media to even like get in this game and, and, and I think most Americans maybe haven't like intellectualized this or like, you know, like thought about it in these exact terms. It's just kind of a gut thing. But like what do you, we know they all lie. Who cares? And, and you knew 90 percent of Trump's lies are something that you understand right away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, why would he say his crowd sizes were right. bigger when they weren't like? I don't know, because he's tremendous, and that makes him right. look tremendous. He has the best and, words. You know what I mean? Everyone else, <laughs> yes, everyone else is a loser, and he's terrific, and like that's it's so obvious. So why? And and so there, I think there was something that it did just kind of like it it put this gap between them and regular people. And and again, I also think that look the I, I know it's the the um the Federal Reserve's numbers, but they're actually very good at keeping numbers in some way. It's like the only thing the Fed does uh, pretty well. but with according to the Federal Reserve between two thousand seven and two thousand ten, I think the median net worth went down forty percent like in three years. And I know some of that came back in the Obama recovery, but it definitely uh, you know, as Bernie Sanders would point out, it did disproportionately come back to certain groups that we might, you know, point out we're like the politically connected, like I was saying before, the Washington connected and the stock market connected. And I, like, to me, this is the, the American people ever since the financial crisis have had like real concerns. They're really worried about their future and their kids not having as good uh, a life as they had. And in this time, you know, what the corporate press is freaking out about lying about, you know, crowd sizes when these guys lied to you about your son going to war and about your your family's health insurance it's just it, it, it i don't know it really it did a lot to you know undermine their credibility which i'm hoping i think ultimately is probably a good thing but it it doesn't it's not great for stability in the short term and like you're saying dave too like, again I, I don't want this to come off like oh come on Don, you know the donald went well and he's trying to make america great I, there's a lot of issues i have but in terms of his like, yeah, a lot of those things, he's almost like a marketeer. You know what I mean? Like when it, when you see a commercial and they say, we've got the best pizza on planet Earth and our prices won't be beat. You're not going to yeah. think, well, actually, uh, I think the pizza, you know, the pizza over in Lebanon tastes better. You know, that it's, you know that what they're being hyperbolic of that claim. And a lot of the stuff that Trump would say, like the way he delivered it, it's almost like he's saying this is not literally correct. I'm just trying to, you know get on, you know, show you I'm one of you kind of thing. Well, I think it's, it is absolutely true that media has dropped his pretenses. Media has changed in my lifetime. Uh, this, this idea of appearing objective is out the window. And cert- clearly they treated Trump differently. A- NPR has changed radically, let's say in 10 years. I mean, NPR used to talk about gourds, you know, and, and now, you know, I mean, the whole thing now is just, it's literally state media, you know, and CNN, I would say, is a close cousin. So when the, when people talk about RTV and, you know, come on, we have state media, folks. But, you know, the three of us would look at this situation and say, oh, my gosh, we're so divided. And here here's our prescription. We would probably say something like, look, markets are a form of social cooperation. The marketplace is win-win. Politics is zero-sum. So we have to shrink the realm of politics. Government ought to be smaller. And to the extent government is out there bossing everybody around, we'd like to see that as decentralized as possible. We'd like to see D.C. matter less. 
And I think the three of us would probably say 330 million people is too big for any kind of country or national polity. That's too much. You're, you're always going to have a social division if you have mass de democracy in a country of that size. So we would have all these prescriptions for a more libertarian society. But getting back to Bannon's point about information, here's a challenge for you two, which is basically, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, I think you could cogently argue that, that most people don't really understand libertarianism or haven't read much about it, haven't heard much about it. Fast forward to today, and I think there's an argument that libertarianism has been considered and rejected by most normies. You know, maybe they haven't gone and read it, but they didn't they didn't care to, you know. Uh, I mean, I haven't gone and listened to most Beyonce because I, I don't care to. That's outside my worldview, right? So so the the idea that we can create a more libertarian society through through persuasion, through getting the word out, I, I think we have to to reconsider that and ask ourselves if, if that's the case. Well, okay, so I, I tend to disagree with you on on this and not not entirely i mean i you know can we create a libertarian society through persuasion well probably it's going to take something more than that but i would i guess my pushback to that would be that what if you stopped the a random person on the street and asked them about libertarianism i i mean i don't know exactly what you would get but maybe one out of five of them have heard of Gary Johnson or something like that, or have heard of like, maybe, I mean, maybe it's a, maybe two out of five of them know who Rand Paul is, probably think Ron Paul and Rand Paul are the same person. I mean, I'm, I know people like in the comedy world who will sometimes, you know, like talk to me about this stuff and they didn't realize mm -hmm. Ron was the father and Rand is the kid. Well, they're 50% you know I mean? the same person genetically, so. Yeah, well, that, that is true. And politically too. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know what I mean? So I think the, the way I look at it is like when the, the really the only time in my life uh, that somebody like a really great libertarian who is, is saying it the way me and you and, and Bob would want it to be said like, or, or something pretty close to that. Like we're really happy with the way this guy is delivering the message was was Ron Paul's two runs. And that generated tremendous enthusiasm and energy. And a lot of people were interested in it since aside from that. There, there really hasn't been anyone who was saying it the right way. And, and if someone did take a look at Gary Johnson or, or Joe Jorgensen or something like this and was didn't get attached to that, I, I can understand why. I probably wouldn't have either if that was my first introduction to libertarianism. So I don't think it's something that we can necessarily say, well, we can get 51% of people to believe this or something like that. I think we can certainly get a lot more. We can introduce these ideas to a lot more people and more is better. More gives us a better opportunity, no matter what the 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 strategy is going to be. But I do think ultimately, probably, yes, that's, it's not like we're going to persuade people into getting 51% of the population. Then we're going to win the every, you know, the presidency and the Congress with all libertarians. Then we're going to use that to roll back the state. I think what's much more likely is that if we, instead of having maybe like a million libertarians in the country, if we had like 10 million or 15 million of us, then certain strategies could be uh, much more 
plausible, whether that's something like the Free State Project or something like, you know, pushing um, uh, decentralization locally, kind of a hoppian, you know, what must be done type strategy where more people are are taking control of their localities. And, and that I, I think that's interesting. I think just even a mass movement of uh, pulling your kids out of public school, which some is already happening. Uh, unrelated to us, I think is a, a is a very big deal. Um, I, I think like Ron Paul, we'll have to see. It'll take time, but Ron Paul creating his homeschool uh, curriculum mm-hmm. may have been a bigger impact than his his presidential campaigns. You know, like maybe that's the path. But so I do still think that, it, like even in this post persuasion America, there is something like like this natural tendency of human beings to, to desire the truth and respond to it when it's, when it's told to them that still exists in a lot of people. Um, and so I do think it's, it's still worthwhile to reach out to those people. Um, but it's probably not on its own going to be a solution. Can I ask just to, to see if there's actually a, a gap in what you guys are saying? So, so Jeff, when, you know, in terms of Bannon saying this is post persuade, does that just mean, yeah, we still want candidates to espouse things, but like the rhetoric they use, it's not going to be well. If we if we look at this white paper from the Cato Institute, we can see that free trade over. Well, is that what you mean? Think, you know, versus like I think th- what he these meant. people are trying to get you. What? what who, yes. Okay. Go I, ahead. I think what he meant is that politics today is about turnout, mm-hmm. and so if you have to be inflammatory to get turnout, you know, like my opponent on the school board will uh, will uh, allow uh you know drag queen story hour Mm-mm. and you know you know so that's about turnout more than that's about uh you know ideology or something right i mean that that's mm-hmm. I, I think that's what bannon was saying and and I, but i i guess what i mean is that persuasion ought seemingly ought to be easier when we have all the ammunition at our disposal of the internet Mm-hmm. On, a, on a per capita basis, you, you'd think that it would be easier today, not harder. But Bannon, Bannon seems to be going the other way. He, he seems to be saying that, you know, no, people aren't, aren't more considerate today because they can go read Jacobin magazine. They can go, you know, they can easily go to Bernie Sanders' website to find out what Bernie actually purports to stand for. That's, he says, you know, that's not happening at all. Well, I think from my perspective, I think it's almost like both of these things are happening simultaneously. So yeah, I, I do think that most um, political debates uh, don't seem to be an attempt to persuade anybody. They seem to be an attempt to demonize uh, whoever's on the other side of that debate from you. Like I, I don't think that most of the time, like the, the trans activists are trying to convince you that no, actually, look, here's where we scientifically know that gender and sex are different. And this is why, tra-, you know, it's like they're, they're trying to call you all types of awful names if you're not on board with the program. But at the same time, I, you know, the, if you look at like the history of say the Mises Institute, it, where it's basically because Rothbard gets on the wrong side of the Koch brothers, he's driven out of the 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 world of where you're allowed to be within these networks of people. Him and Lou Rockwell go against their wishes, form this this institute, and they've just got to sit over there. And you won't be able to reach all of the people that you used to because Murray Rothbard isn't going to be writing in National Review a- a- anymore. And he won't be in any of these publications. And then years later, when the Internet really emerges, all of a sudden, 
the 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 ability of the institute to be spread to millions of people is all all, all of a sudden it's a whole different world and now people heard of Ron Paul and they go look this up and all of these other things and so I think that there there is an ability for people who were kind of cast out of the the old movements to be able to to persuade a lot of people but at the same time there are probably much larger numbers of people who aren't even interested in in persuasion or ideas but i you know i i i think overall it's we're still probably in a better situation than we were um when the only way to get information out was you know to be in one of these like five publications that was heavily funded or get on one of three tv channels or be in one of you know the the few newspapers in wide circulation i mean it, it at least we have an opportunity now for people to hear some some other views. And there are there certainly are some people who are, you know, very interested in that. I think what's going on, Jeff, to explain that a seeming paradox, like how come now if there's more detailed information, it seems like people rely less on logic and evidence and they instead just go to, you know, intuition or just, you know, this guy seems like he's my kind of guy. I think it's because. Now, whatever you emotionally or whatever want the answer to be, you can go find a PhD who will tell you why that's right. Like it's real, you know what I mean? So like on the COVID stuff, somebody comes out with a study saying one thing and then you just, you can go find an MD saying the exact, you know, point by point refuting that. So both sides can, or the climate change stuff, like the, you know, the people who are quote deniers, they don't just say, oh, I don't believe in science. No, they can go point to a bunch of PhDs, one of whom's at MIT and show why, you know, see, I read these eight books on the topic, and that's why I don't think we need to regulate carbon dioxide emissions. And so they feel very, so, but how did they get to that? It's not because they did the research first, and then the answer popped out, is that they knew what they wanted the answer to be, and then you can go find it. So I think that's partly what's what's going on. So maybe that's what Bannon is saying, is that, you know, let's just accept reality, and, the, and that's why Trump was successful, is because he showed, I'm against the people that hate your guts, and then, yeah, you can go intellectually justify, you know, his policy positions because there's that's information is so accessible now. Yeah, well, I, I remember just say I remember seeing um, it was one of Donald Trump's last uh, campaign rallies in, in 2020. And I talked about this a bunch on my show, but it, it, it was a while ago now, but it was in central Pennsylvania and he drew something like it was like 75,000 people or something like that. It was insane. It was just this sea of, of people in central Pennsylvania. And Donald Trump got on stage and he there was like a six minute uninterrupted we love you chant before he started talking. And then I remember just, you know, even though we talk about this and think about this stuff all the time, I remember just being blown away, like just looking at this, that this billionaire from New York City was able to like form this connection with his people like and they and and obviously none of this was about you know persuasion in the sense of like oh he really persuaded them that that protectionism was superior to to free trade or something like that you know it was it was like it was a very tribal thing it was like look the this entire uh, establishment hates your guts and they have betrayed you and I love you and I'm going to fight for you. And that was it. They were like, he's our guy. He's our champion. He's against all the people who are against us and we're with him. And so I do think that that in terms of if you're you know talking about under the framework of a democracy and you're trying to get as many votes as you can, I think that stuff is going to move a lot more people than any of these you know intellectual discussions about issues will. 
Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? That's one of the problems or the knocks on libertarianism is that it's a logical system in an emotive game. That we're trying to convince people, look at the beauty and logic and consistency of our arguments and all these things would work great. We actually don't need an FDA. Here's how this would work, you know. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think you have to look at antecedents. You have to understand that there's always there's always hope because if you live through the 60s and 70s, for example, there was a lot of political violence. There were serious riots in cities. There, were some, there was a period of really serious political assassinations. Right. I mean, that was rough. And if you came out of all of that, you know, and then look, look at how Barry Goldwater got absolutely trounced with a, you know, kind of a semi-libertarian, smaller government message. You know, it would have been very hard it, it, in that time to have predicted a, two Reagan landslides 10 or 15 years hence. It would have been very hard to predict that. And you could call that uh, backlash or, you, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, and if you look at... Um, Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot, their campaigns. In many ways, they, those presaged Donald Trump many, many years later. So it's, you know, the fact that Trump won in and of itself is probably the most astounding political event of, certainly of our, will be the most astounding political event of our lifetimes. Uh, the fact that Donald Trump, who is in no way animated by social issues. I mean, they could have gotten some red state governor type you know, like Mike Huckabee or Ted Cruz. And so they got Donald Trump, who liked labor unions and protectionism and, and had had a bunch of supermodel wives and lived in New York City and all that. He didn't care a whit about abortion. A whit. Yeah. And if you had told me Donald Trump would give you the, the, the three Supreme Court judges who overturned Roe, yeah, if you had right. told me that Roe v. Wade would be overturned in my lifetime, I would have said, get out of here. Yeah. No, it really is something. And, and, and it's like, right. And, and just the, the fact that you know, there's like a guy who liked porn stars and stuff. You know what I mean? He was in, in no way at all uh, what you would have thought that. The, but that was the thing that was so unique about Donald Trump. And it was just he was he just happened to be like famous enough. Dave, and, Dave, and rich enough. And, se sex work is work. Well, that and is the fact true. that Donald Trump is more enlightened on this. Uh, I. <laughs> I, I I, I mean, I, I he likes porn agree. stars in the he likes porn stars in the abstract, Dave. Yes, that's right. true. I do technically agree, by the way, with the statement that sex work is work. I mean, I would I would agree with that. It does seem like work, especially if you know your your client is Donald Trump. But anyway, um, but you know, he was. It was also just his how brash he was just played such a role in the fact that he was able to. You know, I, I remember um, back in 2012. And I remember this because I cared so much about it at the time. But there was uh, there was a, a presidential debate. You guys probably remember this when I tell the story. But there were only four people left in the debate, and it was uh, it was Romney, Ron Paul, Gingrich, and I'm, I'm blanking on who the fourth was, but and one other person in the debate. So it was, was it Santorum or Huckabee, it, it possibly, possibly. I can't remember. Um, but it was uh, so I was excited because you know this is Ron Paul's moment there's a, he's down to the final four they can't only give him 2 minutes now you know they got to let him talk and he could have a great debate performance and um, which he did but the opening question if you remember was about Newt Gingrich's ex-wife who had just come out they had done this big exposé on her where she made all of these Oof. like crazy claims about him and um he uh you know like that he wanted to have an open marriage and stuff like this and like really just personal stuff that was just so 
inappropriate that they were like using this during a presidential election. And they the first question went to him and they were like, well, you know, your ex-wife said this thing. Do you do you want to respond? And he goes, no, but I will. And he said the and he just blasted the media. And he, he goes, the fact that you guys would take this and use it and open the debate with this question just speaks to how disgusting the, the mainstream media is. And, all. and it got like this. Like there was never an applause at any Republican debate that I've heard that was louder than this. If, you, if any of you guys want to go look it up on YouTube, it, I think it was louder than any applause Donald Trump got at any one of those those debates. I mean, it was just and I hated it at the time because I was like, damn it. He just stole this moment that was supposed to be Ron Paul's moment. And yeah, but it I, did, I don't think I appreciated until later just how much anger there was in that base against this this media that they correctly recognized was completely against them and was going to demonize any one of their leaders if they ever got up there. And there, this stuff was really, it was under the surface for a long time. And then Donald Trump enters and he pisses all of them off so much that he, that helps so much because now you're our hero. You're at least getting back the people who we've wanted to get forever. And then you also realize that, yeah, maybe they didn't, they didn't care about all that stuff as much as they always say. I mean, they may personally really be opposed to abortion, but do they really care that their politician is is that way too? I don't know. Maybe that wasn't as important to them. Can I ask you, Dave? As um, I'm looking at the clock here, I know I wanted to get to this one to you. Just to, yeah, I know you don't shy away from hard questions, and I think a lot of people wonder this. If if the quintessential examples of who's doing this right, and you know, not not in terms of policy, but just is you know Donald Trump's campaign, and then the tw- two things that Ron Paul did. Couldn't somebody say, well, yeah, but Ron Paul got more of a platform because he ran as a Republican. When he ran as a Libertarian, it wasn't as big. And so, what do you say to someone that you know? There's lots of people, obviously, who are small L Libertarians, but they think the way we reach the most people and get into the debates on TV is working through the Republican Party for good or bad. Yeah, well, I I think that. There, so I, I, this is why I supported Ron Paul and I was never a member of the Libertarian Party until I joined in 2018, is that uh, Ron Paul basically said, he was like, well, all the rules are rigged against third parties and the only way to get on the debates is going through the Republicans. And so that's, you know what I mean? That's what I'm going to do. And then, you know, has some justification, like, I mean, the Republicans say they're for small government. So, hey, I'm going to actually believe that and be here. And I basically thought, yeah, that's, that's about right. Um, but I just think that the... 2022 is a very different time than 2007, 2008 was. And that if you look at Ron Paul's campaigns, no question being on those debate stages was a huge part of what what uh, generated, you know, all the interest. But the truth is because that's how he could reach a large number of people. And then he had all of his success really through the Internet. That's where he broke fundraising records and things like that. And that the biggest Im- impediment to Ron Paul's campaign was that he was blacked out of all the media coverage, you know, the stuff John Stewart made the joke mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, Mitt Romney's in first knocking Michelle Bachman down to third, you know, and it was like, wait, what? There's, we're just pretending second doesn't exist. And so that was kind of the game back then was how could you get in front of a large number of people? And the only way to do it was going through the corporate press. And that's just not true anymore. Mm-hmm. And what started to, to change for me was in 2016, um, when you saw that you had Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and these candidates who personally people really did not like and then you have a third party with the name libertarian who more people than ever were taking a look at and and the problem is just what they, when they took a look what they saw was just you know 
not what I would want them to see. And so I think now we're in a very different landscape. I mean, what are the are the presidential debates even going to happen? I think the Republicans are saying they're not going to be a part of it as of right now. I don't I don't even think that's that's going to be a thing. Um, I, I don't think there's going to be some big primary in the Republican field with lots of different views, uh, uh, competing views. And now. I don't know. I'm not so concerned about getting blacked out from CNN, who doesn't have a single show that gets over a million views. When there are these other, you know, like podcasts and shows on the internet that are getting 20 times that. And, mm -hmm. you know, and so I just think it's like, oh, we don't really need to play that game anymore. Now, if the if the goal is getting our message out, there's lots of other ways to do it. And there I, I saw this thing where there's this libertarian party that's run by a bunch of clowns who don't represent the liberty movement at all. And it was like, we can just take this thing over if we want to. And I was right. And we went and did that. And now we have that. And I go, well, if the goal is what the goal of the Ron Paul campaigns are, what the goal of, I think, the Mises Institute from its inception has been, which is to, like to get these ideas out there it, more so than they are because they deserve that. I think this is the best. This is the best, uh, you know, like tool at our disposal right now to do that. And that doesn't also mean that we can't work with like Liberty Republicans, many of whom who I, I think are great. You know, I think like I love what Tho Bishop is doing at his local level and I love what Eric Brakey is doing. And I love, uh, you know, for whatever problems they may have, Rand Paul has been nothing short of heroic on on this covid stuff. And I, you know, I, I love Thomas Massey and those guys. So, like, I still think there's it's not like. Uh, in either or completely, but I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of value given our current environment to, to the LP strategy. Well, I was halfway thinking that maybe Trump was doing a rope-a-dope and was not going to run, but wanted to just hang that over the Democrats for a while. But now I definitely think he is running. The last month or so, I think we've seen that for sure. Uh, Judge Knapp uh, and Alan Dershowitz have been talking about how you know, he will be indicted because Gar Garland can't do this and then not indict him because that would probably just look bad. It already looks bad. Uh, so but the fact that he's indicted, even even you can indict a ham sandwich, as they say, even charged, even convicted. None of that prohibits him from running for president. He could run for president from prison. Uh, there is this 14th Amendment twist. There's a clause in the 14th Amendment that says if, if you've been uh, guilty of uh, insurrection against the United States, you can't hold federal office. So I think that's, that's one of the angles, not the only one, but one of the angles behind the January 6th stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's the idea, you know, would DeSantis run and would him and Trump uh, beat each other up in a primary? That that's re remains to be seen. But um, – have you made a decision that this is what you're going to do with your life for the next few years? Or are you still still thinking about it? I, I, I haven't 100 percent made up my mind, um, but I, I do think you're it's very interesting what the landscape is going to look like. So my my thing is like and you, you may know more about this, the legality of this than me. But also if let's say hypothetically they get Trump on, you know, they're they're charging him under the Espionage Act or something like that. Right. And they're you know. They, they find whatever he had classified information or something, whatever their, their justification is. I mean, this is going to be tried in what? In Washington, D.C.? Sure. Where what, what does Trump have? Four percent support mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C.? You get this in front of an Obama appointed judge. You know, I mean, it seems to me like there could be a very high likelihood that he is convicted and could then part of his uh, agreement be like, OK, for a reduced sentence or something like this, you won't pursue uh, political office. Also, you could I think the Republican Party could technically ban him from running under the Republican Party. So I think there's uh, a lot of different 
you know, like possibilities of how this could play out. But I do tend to agree. I think the whole mission here is to get him and not allow him to run for president again. Well, I think that, that it, it, it's from the establishment perspective. It cannot be allowed for this guy to now come beat. You no, again. he will. This, he will. He will never be president again. He would never be allowed to be president. Yeah. We know that for sure. Uh, and I've argued that given Biden's infirmities, I've actually argued this on Kennedy's Fox show a couple of times. Um, I, I think Hillary is the strongest candidate for the Democrats uh, absent Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden, they're already pushing him under the bus with the Hunter stories and such. I think his mental and physical infirmities are going to continue to manifest in embarrassing ways and that they will go uh, to their bench, which is, you know, you know, uh, um, Governor of California Newsom has his, his own problems. Um, you know, Kamala Harris has her problems. I think Hillary uh, is a very strong candidate. So I think I think that's uh, perhaps more likely than you might think. Bob, we're going to give you the last word because we got to wrap this up. I guess I would just say, Dave, keep in mind what Jeff said. There's some very important that if you get convicted of insurrection against the United States, you're not allowed to run for president. So just just remember that. <laughs> I'll keep that. I'll try my best. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back next week. Uh, I think again in a roundtable format with, with another episode of the Human Podcast. So I want to thank Dave and Bob for their time, and everybody have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.